All right, so I want to preface, and we'll eventually get to the word, I think, that we'll be dealing with tonight. Basically, it's the word propitiation. Uh, but go back and, and remind ourselves of our approach. And I know I've mentioned this, by the way, we're up to like 306 slides. I've just been building slides on the same whatever PowerPoint. So we've covered a whole lot of material and we're past halfway. Not much, but we're about past halfway. We're still in dealing with the doctrine of salvation, soteriology. And so when you approach a doctrine, and it, we're, we're dealing with the doctrine of salvation, everyone has their opinions, right? And what they're doing is that they have all these thoughts in regard to salvation, and they carry it around in a box, all right? And this is what I think about salvation, and this is what I think about who can be saved, and this is what I think about free will, this is what I think about sovereignty, and those sort of things. So you're walking around this little box, and we, if we're not careful, we'll be carrying boxes. And when you do that, you're operating by what's known as a systematic theology. Now, I said here, too, Abby and I were laughing about this last week, but I really don't think you're qualified to have a systematic theology until you're in your 70s. Uh, you need to have spent a lifetime with biblical theology is what, which is what we're doing, and then your systematics will develop over time. So you've got two approaches to this, okay? Let me explain this, and I'm really doing this for Nathan's perspective and anyone else that might want to pastor someday. We have this doctrine of salvation, right? So I can just teach you that doctrine. I can give you the points to that doctrine. I can have you memorize that doctrine. For instance, the doctrine of atonement that we're dealing with, there's like five theories, I could go through those five theories, give you the languages, give you the points to all those theories. And when we're doing that, we're approaching things from a systematic basis, right? And you've got to memorize it, though, to understand it. I don't like doing things that way. I don't like going from a top-down approach. I like stacking blocks up and building. And so we've been approaching things from a biblical theological perspective. Now, when I say biblical, I'm not talking right versus wrong. That's not what that means. When we talk about a biblical theology, what I've got here up on the board, is like the word for atonement in the Old Testament is kafir. Now, I showed it to you. It's not important. You don't have to know that. But there's 93 times that word is used in the Old Testament. So if you're going to be fair in biblical theology, you're going to look at 93 references in the Old Testament, see how that word is used, see the context, and begin to allow that word to develop into a holistic or a systematic way of thinking so you can understand atonement in the Old Testament. Because here's why that's important. You understand 93 verses on one word and you walk into the New Testament, you're like, of course, I know what it means. We've just gone from Hebrew to Greek and you're going to see the same thing form as you begin to look at all the New Testament passages with your New Testament words for propitiation, which is a lot less, but still they're there. So that's why we're doing what we're doing. We are just letting Scripture guide our thoughts as to how, what we think about the doctrine of salvation. We're not saying, well, you know, this is my box, and I've got all these thoughts and my opinions about that. And when you do that, then you get into arguments with people. Well, I believe this, and I believe that. And I've told you all for the last nine years, I don't like arguments like that. They're absolutely useless. The only discussions we should be having is, okay, how does 
What does that passage teach us about kefir in regard to atonement? It's actually translated the word appease here. So Genesis 32, behold, your servant Jacob also is behind us. This is the, the deal when Jacob and Esau were at one another. And Jacob said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me. Then afterwards I will see his face and perhaps he will accept me. So Jacob's giving his brother a gift because Jacob doesn't want his brother to kill him. And so this particular word is used that we, under, we use in the doctrine of salvation, kefir, and it's translated appease. And so we begin to think about it from that aspect. So we're no longer arguing about, well, this is what I believe, well, this is what I believe. Now we're just having a conversation about what a particular passage, how a particular passage uses a particular word and what it teaches us about that word. And there's 93 of those. So there's plenty of things to talk about rather than two people going, well, I don't believe that. I've told you a thousand times, that's one question God will never ask you. What did you believe? I mean, he wrote the book. It's going to be more based on, did you believe what I wrote down? So we need to have conversations like these. Okay, That's the difference between biblical theology and systematic theology. Any questions about that? That's why it's taken us so long to go through this, because we're on the most important doctrine, the doctrine of salvation, arguably. And we're at the top of the mountain as far as the most important doctrines go because we're talking about atonement. So we're like standing on Mount Everest. And so if we work all the way through these passages coming down the other side of the mountain, we're going to go, yeah, I know what Christ did for me. And I understand all that I can understand as for what's involved. But here, this is what Zemeck says about this, and it's really good for us to consider Although the substitutionary theory, and that's one of the doc or the theories about the atonement, although substitutionary theory is the best option as the theological box into which various verses pertaining to atonement can be put, we find even this container to be just a bit too small. Some of the Bible's exegetical data, which passages, some of the Bible stuff will simply not fit into that box. Hermeneutical hammers and hermeneutics is just the way we approach the text. Forged in the furnace of theological presuppositions or pre-thoughts should never be employed to force it into the box. The balance of the Bible concerning any and every issue must not be violated because of human systems. Theological tensions always keep cropping up. Let me try to explain that in a nutshell. People say... I believe this, and then they go pick the particular passages that promote that and the passages that cause them problems they avoid or they explain them away. Biblical theology does not allow you to do that. You have to deal with all the passages. And if it messes up your box, I suggest you cut a hole in your box. I don't even, I don't even like boxes. I like categories. And I'm trying to put some things in your category of the doctrine of salvation because it's going to be an ever-expanding category if you study the Word of God for the rest of your life. You're going to understand more the glory of Christ in a greater sense the more time that you spend in the Word of God. I, I saw something today or this week studying in the Gospel of Luke and how long did we spend in Luke? And I'm like, how could I have missed that? But I was studying back through a passage for a night and I'll show you that in just a few minutes. But that's why I don't have a box because if I had a box, what I saw this week wouldn't fit in my box. So I don't carry around boxes. I just carry around categories, and I got to put something new in my category. I, 
understood something a little better this week. So we're using biblical theology to understand the idea of atonement. I've given you this definition several weeks. This is from the, the Dictionary of Biblical Theology. It's a good one. Atonement is defined as God's work on sinners' behalf to reconcile them to Himself. That's it. Okay? It is the divine activity or God's activity that confronts and resolves the problem of human sin so that people may enjoy full fellowship with God both now and in the age to come. While in one sense, the meaning of atonement is very broad and diverse as all of God's saving work throughout time and eternity, but in another perspective, it is very restricted to the cross of Christ. Okay. For instance, I'm showing the kids, Lord willing, tomorrow at release time, a picture of Christ and the sacrifice of Abel. All right, that's a broad picture. But eventually we'll get those kids to the cross and that's a very narrow picture, right? And so we work down. All right, so here is your Old Testament word, kafir. I believe that's the way it's pronounced in the Hebrew. And it's very difficult um, to figure out if it means to cover, to hide, or to wash away. In fact, um, BDAG, uh, what category would BDAG fall into as far as study of words? Uh, it's a lexicon, yeah. So BDAG is one of the most broadly or widely used lexicons that helps us understand the definition of words. And what it does is it actually looks at those 93 verses and it looks at things that were written during that period of time, like if you're dealing with the New Testament, the BDAG would consider literature in the first century and how those words were used. This is Old Testament, so that wouldn't be the case there, but BDAG comes down to the conclusion, you know, we really can't decide if it's to cover or it's to wash away. It's just too tough. And so you just have to put both of those into your category and realize that it could be covering something or it could be removing something. Give you a I did. John got a new haircut uh, today, and he sent us a picture with the cell phone hiding his face, and all he could see was his hair. Okay? We could use that word because he was covering his face, the goofy boy, right? Uh, but in another sense, if we use kafir, you it's just completely to wipe away. It's no longer there. So it's tough to figure these things out. Okay, so this is the passage that I ran across this week, studying a little bit about... Uh, Old Testament atonement, and it has the idea of appease. Again, Esau, Jacob was afraid his brother was going to kill him, and so he offers him a gift so he won't kill him. And so you bring that idea into that word, and we have the idea of appeasement. So atonement is, in some sense, going to appease God. Okay? That's just how Genesis uh, uses that word. Okay, so we've got, does appeasement have an E in it? Probably should get somebody that can spell or write on the board. If that doesn't right, if that's not right, forgive me. All right, so let's, let's just use the passages that I have today to build out this idea of propitiation or atonement, okay? So what does this passage teach us? And I've got the word, kafirs, right here. I blacked it out for you. Um, so tell me something about atonement, and let's begin to build a biblical, theological perspective about atonement.
Okay, so this is how this works. First, you got to get your pen working. All right, so this is how this works. Uh, we're going to make atonement, okay? And it's going to require something, and we pick that up here. The life of the flesh is in the blood. So in relationship to atonement, what else has been brought into the context? I have given it to you on the altar. What's going to happen? Death. Okay, so again, we're building out atonement, right? And so we've got death of something is going to actually make it on our behalf. Does it make sense? Now, we can also add the idea of sacrifice because we understand that in the atonement, the person being atoned is not going to die. Someone's going to die in its place. Okay, So you can build that out from that. And we begin to see that it was a living thing, so there's going to be a death, right? Look at this one. This one all the way down at the bottom is before we have our word. We've read this every week, I think, for the past two or three weeks. Now, if the whole congregation of Israel commits error and the matter escapes the notice of the assembly and they commit any of the things which the Lord God has commanded them not to be done and they become guilty. I'm going to go ahead and underline some ideas. They become guilty when the sin which they have committed becomes known. Then the assembly shall offer a bull of the herd for a sin offering and bring it before the tent. Then the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands on the head of the bull before the Lord and the bull shall be slain before the Lord. Then the anointed priest is to bring some of the blood of the bull to the tent of the meeting and the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle it seven times before the Lord. He shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar which is before the Lord in the tent of meeting. Thus he shall do it. So the priest... Again, shall make atonement for them and they will be forgiven. Got all kinds of stuff here that you got to consider to build out this idea of atonement. So give me some of these things. What creates the need for it? Sin. What accomplishes it? Sacrifice, we've already got it. Is there anyone performing the duty on behalf of those who are guilty? Priest. Yeah, priest. Who is atonement made to? Okay, so this is why this is such a huge, huge subject that you've got to understand your salvation because we're going to bring all this into the end. New Testament, we're going to see appeasement, death, sacrifice, sin, priest, and we're going to see it on behalf of God. And this is what, I'm going to go ahead and draw this in. It might be a little more difficult to accept, but this is what reconciles the relationship. Okay? Because if they had not done this, they would still be at odds with God. There had to be a death. There had to be a sacrifice. Sin had to be atoned for in order for God to be restored in their relationship with Him. Now, obviously, y'all are familiar with the cross, and this has already taken shape for you, right? 
All right. All right. So if you have your Bible, Psalm 78, because this is really small. I can't stand when it all don't fit, and I can't stand to break it up. So just Psalm 78. All right, I'm going to start reading in verse 31. I'll underline some things up here. I'm going to underline verse 31, the first part of that verse, because that's why we started on this verse. The anger of the Lord rose against them and killed some of their stoutest ones and subdued the choice men of Israel. In spite of all this, they continued in their sin, or they still sinned. They did not believe in God's wonderful works. So he brought their days to an end in futility and their years in sudden terror. When he killed them, I'm going to circle that. Then they sought him and returned and searched diligently for God. They remembered that God was their rock and the Most High God was their Redeemer. But, verse 36, they deceived God with their mouth and lied to him with their tongue. For their heart was not steadfast toward them, nor were they faithful in his covenant. 38, but, it's one of those New Testament buts, but he, being compassionate, propitiated, translated forgave, this is your word, kafir, their iniquity and did not destroy them and did not arouse all his wrath. Now, let's get away from our subject just a minute. What do you think verse 36 means? How did they deceive God with their mouth? That's exactly right. Do you know how often y'all do that, including myself? I used to attend a church several years ago that was constantly doing things, especially during that frame of time where they had the men's conference. I even forget the name of that thing. Promise Keepers. Promise Keepers, yeah. Like the head coach for the Denver Broncos was one of the heads over there. And you go to these things, and men would stand up and they would challenge men for the whole weekend, and then they'd get men to stand up and make these commitments. And they did that at church, and everybody's the only guys up there making commitments. And I'm like, why are you doing that? You know what you're going to do in like a week from now. You're going to forget all these commitments and all this business. But nonetheless, this is what they're doing. They said something with their mouth, but they didn't back it up with their heart. God was very displeased with that. But we've got the idea of atonement in here. It's translated forgave. So give me some context that's built around that word that will help us better understand appeasement. The wrath of God was deserved. Okay, now this, I'm telling you right now, so we were at John's church this past Sunday, and he was teaching on the theories of atonement for Sunday school. Glad to know that I'm not the only person that's doing really hard things to the congregation. He had five theories up there. And out of all of those theories, there's only one that accepts the wrath of God. And if we had time, we'd draw them up on the board, but you'd never remember them uh, anyway. But all the theories are built around the idea that no one likes a wrathful God. And so they like to remove wrath. 
Now, is there any way that you can see that you can remove the wrath of God from the idea of atonement or propitiation in the Old Testament? It's the whole purpose of it. I mean, it says right there, but he being compassionate, uh, forgave their sin, did not destroy them. And often he restrained his anger and he did not arouse his wrath. It's like the point of celebration that propitiation or atonement gives us. We don't suffer the wrath of God. So all those theories of atonement that remove the wrath of God, you can just immediately discard all those because the reason that they don't, they don't like it or the reason that, well, it makes God look bad and therefore they keep it out of their box. I can't make my God look bad. Another, some of those other theories, they don't like you and I undergoing the wrath of God. Like I, I share the gospel with a family member pretty regularly, and they cannot comprehend the wrath of God. When I talk to them about their sin and the fact that they deserve the unmitigated wrath of God for all eternity, they start shaking their head, no. Nuh-uh. Can't comprehend that. But you do realize that's what the Bible says is God's automatic response to sin, wrath. Okay? Wrath. And so propitiation has something to do with staying or appeasing the wrath of God. Okay, Now, what motivated, by the way, atonement? You can find that in verse 38. Yes. Let me go back to this. You're saved based off of God's character, not your character. Right? This is the only reason atonement is an option for us, because of the character of God. He is gracious and compassionate, willing to forgive, full of mercy and loving kindness, This is who our God is. So why do we even have this? Because we have this. Because this right here is what you deserve. Period. But we have this because God, or we have atonement because God is gracious. All right, so what does atonement do with sin? Come on, that's pretty easy. It does, therefore we have forgiveness. Okay, again, if we're still looking at the cross, you see wrath? Yeah. Do we see compassion? We don't have an English word to describe the character of God at Calvary. Compassion and mercy just don't reach high enough. Love, it falls short too when you look at Calvary. And then is forgiveness offered at Calvary? Yeah, for everyone who believes. You see how this works? And we're building this off of three Old Testament passages, and we've developed a pretty good idea of what atonement's going to look like on Calvary because you roll into Old Testament, New Testament. All right, let's see what I've got beyond there. Okay, Psalm 79. Do not remember the iniquities of our forefathers against us. Let your compassion come quickly to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God of our salvation. For the glory of your name, deliver us and forgive our sins for your name's sake. Now, first of all, the God of our salvation, it's his. That's why salvation is sovereign. He accomplishes it all. Okay, it is his salvation. Now, there's another word here in verse nine. Well, you see the idea of compassion. I'm not going to write that down again. The writer of the Psalms appeals to God's character for atonement. Okay, let your compassion come quickly. 
Here's a word here that we haven't added. What does atonement look like? Deliverance. Okay. So if y'all were last year in release time, I don't know how many weeks we went, but every week was about deliverance. Every picture in the Bible is about deliverance. I mean, you go to look at Egypt, how God rescues them out of Egypt with the ten plagues and all that stuff. God is trying to make himself known and help his people realize that he is a God who delivers his people. Okay? And when we get to the New Testament, we see that we're not being delivered from Egypt, but we're being delivered from sin, sin and death. Okay? So we brought a whole new idea into this doctrine of atonement. There's a deliverance that takes place at Calvary. Okay? Now, this is interesting. I'm just going to leave it here for you because I'm actually going to pick this up Sunday morning. Here's an idea in verse 9 that we haven't dealt with, and I, I dare say you've never considered, but what was the purpose of our atonement? For His glory. Now, <laughs> if soteriology is the top doctrine and atonement is the top of the mountain, top of that mountain, his glory is up in the clouds. We're at this point as high as you can possibly go with your salvation. We're talking about His glory. So this is where I wind up Sunday. Why did God save you? For the sake of His name. For His glory. He took rebellious sinners and made them co-heirs with Christ. And we will forever sing the praises to His name for what He has done crazy, the glory of God. All right. Uh, Proverbs 16, another Old Testament passage. By loving kindness and truth, iniquity is atoned for. I, I'll just throw that right there. It's still the character of God. Uh, the fury of a king is like messengers of death, but a wise man will appease it. Again, you have the idea of death. And you have the word for atonement in relationship. We've got that. Isaiah 6. I put this in here because I know you're all probably familiar with this passage. Uh, Isaiah uh, comes before the presence of the Lord. And he responds, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is atoned. That's an interesting passage. I'm sure there's observations we can draw from that, but that's pretty tough, but I still wanted to include it. But it, it does have the idea of, you know, Tyler and I got in this, conversation about expiation and propitiation. I told you expiate was to just wipe away. Propitiate is to substitute. That's expiation right there. It has the idea of your sin is taken away, okay? Which relates to forgiveness. Okay, here's a good one that I can't leave off the table. Isaiah 47. You tell me what we gather from this. Evil will come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster will fall on you, for which you cannot atone. 
and destruction about which you do not know will come on you suddenly. Tell me what we learned about atonement in that. You're brilliant. Yes, you can't. You cannot do this yourself. It's not possible. Okay? Not possible. All right. New Testament. Here we go. So turn with me to Luke 18. I'll show you what I learned this week. Are we doing okay on time? It is not. The rest of them is just going to come like this because we've just walked into the New Testament. I know, whatever. You're super familiar with this passage. All right. Luke 18, look at verse 1. Now he was telling them a parable. Okay, who's he? And what is he doing? What's a parable? We don't have time. Cody. <laughs> What's a parable? How many lessons? Good. A story that teaches us one lesson, not all kinds of lessons. Okay? Now, you know this story. Two men go up to the temple to pray. I will read it through it real quick. Um, Verse 9, he also told this parable to some who were trusted in themselves and they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and pay tithes to all that I get, but the tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but he was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified, which means heaven, <laughs> rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Okay? So here's the thing. He didn't use the word for mercy. He didn't use the word for forgiveness. Uh, he used the word for propitiation. Now, here's the amazing thing about the Lord and His ability to punch you in the gut. Brad thinks I could punch you in the gut. This one is brutal. Who are the Pharisees? The religious elites. They knew all these words, all these terms, knew all about the sacrifice. And the old, they knew everything, right? And this poor tax collector drops the biggest theological word that you're going to find in the New Testament. Because he didn't just want the mercy of God. He didn't just want the forgiveness of God. He wanted to be propitiated. He wanted all that. And so the tax collector is the theological genius in this while the Pharisee goes home unsaved because he can't comprehend this. And I was blown away by that thought. I'm like, are you kidding me? Only Jesus would set up a Pharisee that bad because Jesus was the one picking these words. And I'm telling you, he could have picked Elias, which is the word for mercy. 
could have picked the word. I can't think of the word for forgiveness right now. There's a whole lot of words that Jesus could have used in this particular that would accomplish everything that, that we think this is drawing the picture of, right? But no, he uses the word uh, and be propitious, propitious. Propitious? Is that the way you say that? Be propitious. Make atonement for me. And you're just like, this guy's a theological genius. He's calling on God based on his character to do all that. So, yeah, this is a very big word. This is the first time we see this word used in the New Testament, and it's from a tax collector. Okay, he's going to drop the top of the mountain. All right, the rest of these, they'll be easy. Watch this. Hebrews 2. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through the fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of David. Therefore, <laughs> what? Descendant of Abraham. Sorry, I'm in a hurry. Jeremy challenged me to get done. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, he was able to come to the age of those who are tempted. That's everything we just talked about. Who's the priest? Christ. Who's offering the atonement? Christ. What for? Sins. Who's he offering it to? The Father. And how does he do it? Through death. And we just built all that out. So you see, our doctrine of atonement is very well developed because when we walk into a New Testament passage, we go, of course you're going to see all that. I know what he said in the Old Testament. I know what Christ is going to do. He's going to do everything that was patterned in the Old Testament. And Jesus is going to do all this for us. Ask him about high priest after class. That's something there. All right. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. He himself is the sacrifice, okay? He is the one who's made propitiation. He is the one that has extended forgiveness. He is the one that cleanses us. Um, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. I don't think this is a big stretch here for me to write the word love because we're still in the character of God. Jesus Christ, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith, which was to demonstrate God's righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that God would be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. 
I want to ask you this real quick because we've dealt with blood. Well, we've got death and sacrifice, so there's your blood. So Jesus was sent as a propitiation to, watch this. Let me pick a good color. Does red work? Does that work? To demonstrate for the demonstration of what? Because he says it twice. Oh, wow. What was that Psalms that we read? Why did Christ or why did God propitiate us for his glory? We get to that in Romans 3. God's demonstrating his righteousness through your salvation. Okay. Oh, last verse, I think. Let me see. Well, it's the idea of mercy. Uh, the word for propitiation is translated mercy seat. Again, character of God. Uh, Hebrews 8. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. They shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen, everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be propitious to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. It's the idea of forgiveness and propitiation. And that's it. So, this is why you do biblical theology. I can't. Sarah, you remember those theories of atonement? There's like five. Somebody Google that. Google theories of atonement. Well, wow, that's the grand one, right? I know. See, that's why I don't tell you all these things. You'll be like, I don't remember what you're saying. But can you remember these things? Because you can just read through the Old Testament or the New Testament. You run across these words and you go, yeah, I know what Christ did for me on Calvary. And I know what it was based on. It was based on the forgiveness of God. And I know if God had not done that, I would suffer the wrath of God. And I know why God did this, because it was what was going on. Or this is, he did this for his glory and not mine. It was his character that motivated him, not my character. Therefore, I was delivered from my sins. They were taken away. He offered me forgiveness. He reconciled my relationship with him. His wrath was appeased. Christ died in my place. He was the sacrifice for my sins. And not only was he the sacrifice, but he was the priest that made the offering. Okay? And so our doctrine of atonement is going to include all this and more because we just spent 30 minutes on this, give or take a minute or two. And we understand a whole lot more about Calvary. And so if you come to me and say, yeah, but I believe, I'll be like, I don't care what you believe. You want to talk about a few passages? I'll talk about a few passages with you. But I know it has to include these things. Okay? Questions about all that? Be a test next week? Okay. Should do. Back to that original definition of that Hebrew word. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, fair. Could we not argue that in the Old Testament it's to cover and in the New Testament it's to wash away? Ah, I'll let you go through those 93 verses. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, because even they knew that it didn't wash it away in the Old Testament. In the Hebrew, yeah. Yeah. Looking forward, forward to the real atonement. 
Well, if we had another two hours, we'd walk back through Hebrews real slowly because the, the whole book of Hebrews deals with the atonement. That's why I love that book and we spent so much time with it. It's atonement from beginning to end. But he uses the word cleanse in the New Testament. And that's a different picture than you're going to find in the Old Testament because it was the cover and now we're cleansing. You know, that might be your, the difference that you're talking about. Um, there was another one in Hebrews. Um, so I, I'd miss this and see if you, you guys catch this because I know y'all been through Hebrews. So why was he made to be like us? Why was God, why did he become flesh and bone just like us? That's one part. What's the second part? I'd missed this one until I went back through reading through Hebrews this time. To be the priest. Because we needed a mediator. So he became flesh and bone, not only to be a sacrifice for men, but to be the priest and mediator for mankind. And I was like, I totally missed that. There were two reasons he came in the flesh. Anyway. <laughs>